0: otherwise we're always going to have the bad actors and that's going to that's going to make it difficult to claim you know that oil and gas is more sustainable if, if we still have a lot of issues with spills or contamination or environmental justice. And those issues have to be tackled. But the same for renewables, right? So we have to have those same conversations with renewable energy companies. I mean you, you have a lot of criticism coming from communities about, you know, how offshore wind is being put out or you know which impacts are going to be felt, who's going to get the jobs. You know, all of these issues are the same. We have to talk about energy, we have to talk about low carbon, we have to talk about circularity, we have to talk about human rights and we have to look at that same set of criteria across the board, data-driven, and then make the right decision based on that same set of criteria.
1: We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here.
0: The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined.
2: the most valuable
3: commodity I know of is information, wouldn't you agree?
1: Welcome to the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 74, coming at you right now, and we're excited about today's episode as we welcome to the program, Miss Elizabeth Carlson, Chief Sustainability Officer from Tricon Energy, a role she just took on this year, and one that she is very excited about as she gets to start their sustainability program from scratch. And, well, let's put it this way, with her pelts on the wall and her global experience, uh, Tricon is in good hands. And, of course, when you listen to the podcast, you'll hear exactly why. But before we get to that, let's listen to our COO and co-founder, Miss Ann Niemer, tell you what it is we do here at eRenewable.
2: Hi, Ann Niemer here, co-founder and COO of eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know everyone has sustainability needs and wants. We want to help you reach your ESG goal. Our goal is to bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both buyers and sellers. Our electronic management tool helps streamline the RFP process. Whether you need to procure energy or find an off-taker for a renewable project, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Our other projects include solar or battery storage development, renewable natural gas or responsibly sourced gas, LED lighting, and HVAC efficiency upgrades, or unbundled RECs or RSG certificates, all helping our customers reach their sustainability goals and meeting their ESG needs. Please visit our website at eRenew.net or call us at one 866 erenew one as always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable.
1: Thanks so much for that, Miss Ann Niemer. Of course, you can find out more about the company over at our website, erenew.net. Definitely give us a follow. Connect with us over at LinkedIn, whether it's me, Miss Ann Niemer, uh, Mike Niemer, our other co founder and CEO, and of course, who you hear on the podcast as well. And then, of course, our CFO is Mr. Al Gallo. All right, let's jump into the program. Without further ado, Miss Elizabeth Carlson, just another great bit of information you're going to get from Miss Carlson. Uh, again, she's starting this program from scratch over at Tricon Energy, so we're going to hear from her about that. And as she points out, you know, working for a commodity trading company, the role and the impact that they can have on both the energy transition and a circular economy, which she delves into as well. ESG, look, we'd be silly if we didn't talk about that, but what Miss Carlson brings to the table talking about how with ESG scoring there doesn't need to be just one scoring system. Kind of a theme that we keep hearing but more importantly as she touches on it doesn't have to be quantitative and particularly uh, she'd like to see it be more industry specific. Data transparency, carbon pricing, why that's important for the future and of course as we mentioned the circular economy. So much good information in here you will certainly enjoy it and I promise you you will learn something from it. So please welcome to the program Miss Elizabeth Carlson.
0: I come from a relatively non-traditional background in the sense that I, I always wanted to work more from a mission standpoint of you know making a positive impact. And I started out a nonprofit when I was studying abroad in Kazakhstan in college. The professor started talking about oil and gas development and all the environmental issues and local content issues that can come along with that. And it really got me thinking about the role of companies in society and in energy, right? So I started looking at corporate social responsibility, how are companies behaving in in different contexts, different countries, and that's really how I fell into the energy industry. And then while I was working in Liberia, I started on a mining project actually, uh, doing social responsibility, community engagement, environmental issues, then moved to Mexico for a petrochemical facility, which was really my first entryway into the oil and gas sector from this, this perspective then came to Houston, we wanted to kind of settle down in the US. And that's where I really started looking more at sustainability more broadly, and then energy transition. So what is the role of companies that have traditionally been in the oil and gas sector in the future of energy and in in how we make this this low carbon transition. Now, as of September, I joined Tricon Energy, which is a commodity trading company based here in Houston, it's a very different way to look at energy and a different way to look at materials and and downstream and how do the circular economy and climate intersect. So not just what is the future of energy, but what are the materials, chemicals um, that go into that energy or come out of that products of those those different types of uh, processes, whether it's bio-based products or oil and gas space products, renewable content, recycled content, all of these questions started coming up. So that's what I'm focused on now is how do we as a trading company work together across the value chain to make meaningful social and environmental impacts. I think I like a challenge. When I was making a move, you know, sometimes you think about should, should I move into something that you know, it's a little bit more relaxed, I right? completely change industries, you know, go into food or agriculture or something completely different. Uh, but for me, the challenge has always been, what is a sector that is struggling on sustainability, or that doesn't have a defined pathway on sustainability, because I like to create programs, and create strategies. So for Tricon, the commodity trading sector as a whole, doesn't really have a defined place in the energy transition. In, in sustainability, in social impact. We have traditionally been in the middle of the value chain. And so you're kind of surrounded by you know large companies, large uh, energy companies, large product companies. Then you also have connection to very small companies internationally. And how do you in the middle of that actually make a difference? And so that that sort of challenge attracted me. And the other thing is that I think our company has a culture where they genuinely want to make a difference. So it's, it's not the, um, idea of we have to do this or um, we're getting a lot of pressure to do this, but we actually want to see what we could do in our place in the value chain to enable these more sustainable markets and to make positive impact on people.
3: You know, you mentioned the circular economy. We're hearing that term used more and more. How do you see a commodity trading firm like yours fitting within that circular motion?
0: Well, that's the question we're trying to answer right now, right? What, what is the strategy right. where, where can we actually make the most significant impact or really contribute value within a, a circular value chain? And I think for us, it's, it's looking at enabling those markets, right? So within energy transition, within circular economy, within any of these sort of sustainable products or sustainable energy solutions, the situation I think we're all facing is a lot of demand everybody wants to be more sustainable now but there's not necessarily sufficient supply right whether it's renewable diesel whether it's um, recycled content products you have a lot of issues between supply and demand and so how can we help enable that market to match you know supply and demand to be more efficient and to connect people around the world who who have products or looking for products. But I think it's also bringing the value chain together, right? So a lot of these issues in sustainability, whether it's renewable energy, whether it's recycling and circularity, whether it's human rights, these have to be tackled collaboratively. And so the nice part of being in the middle of the value chain is that you do have those connections or engagements across different parts of the value chain. The suppliers, the customers, the brand owners, uh, the producers and and how can we help facilitate that engagement and collaboration across all these different players. Yeah, so we're still we're still asking and answering the questions, which I think a lot of companies are in that place right now of, you know, trying to understand where they fit. And I, I think the the learning or the the important thing to note there is that every company really does have a role in this transition and sustainability. You know, a lot of times we think that it's only oil and gas companies, or it's only renewable companies, or it's only, you know, major corporations or certain parts of the value chain. But I I really believe that every part of the economy has a role to play in delivering on, you know, the Paris Agreement on the sustainable development goals. And I think what attracted me and, and continues to be something that I really enjoy is that is that partnership building. Because, you know, a company like ours, we can't tackle sustainability alone. We don't have the, the leverage and the size and the resources. Um, and so that that really forces a collaborative mindset. And that's what we all need to have. You know, we need to have multi-stakeholder partnerships between government, between companies, between activists and NGOs. And that that's what's really going to deliver the solutions, I think. I always like to say when I started in this field, in the private sector, you know, 10, 11 years ago, when I took that job on the, on the mining project, most of what we were doing was voluntary. I mean, the idea was a few good companies want to do something better. There was some regulation you were starting to see, you know, the international financing through the IFC or the World Bank, those types of projects did, did have demands. Um, but it was still largely this idea of corporate responsibility, of doing something beyond what's required um, and, and being more uh, conscious as a, as a corporate citizen. Now, you know, when I came into my job in, you know, 2015, 2016, I felt like 90% of my work was regulatory. There were so many more demands. There was um, a lot of attention to these issues from clients and contractual requirements. And so it became much more mainstream. Um, You know, there was a justification beyond just doing the right thing You, you needed to do this. And now I think we've sort of entered into the next phase, which is, okay, there's a lot of regulation, we need to do this, but also we understand the long-term value creation, which I don't think people 10 years ago were really thinking about that, or not many (laughs) companies, were really thinking about how does sustainability play into the long-term company strategy? How does it create you know, real tangible value for us. And there's been a lot of research, you know, over the last decade that's looked at this in terms of risk management, in terms of reputational capital and and all the different business case indicators. And and I think we're seeing the fruit of that research to where now people can confidently say, yes, like sustainability, ESG issues, these do have an impact on value creation on the long-term sustainable operation of, of the company. I feel like we turned a major corner in 2019. That's when I felt like, okay, we're there. We're ready to go. We understand this is a serious issue. You know, COVID I thought would maybe challenge that and instead it, it sort of accelerated it and people you know, started paying attention to social issues. They really became attuned to a lot of the climate aspects you've seen, incredible. I mean, even though a lot of people are disappointed about some of the COP26 outcomes, you've seen a lot of great commitments from the financial institutions, which to me signals that this is here to stay because you have these, you know, the net zero banking alliance and you have all these, these sort of strong commitments that to me really started in 2005, 2006 with the World Bank and IFC, which kind of led to these project standards. And now we're kind of entering, like I said, the next the next phase of that, where it's, it's going beyond and looking at long-term value. I think what worries me in terms of, is it something that you know, we can't do without, it worries me a little bit the potential for backlash. So I I do get a little nervous that we've taken this, you know, far, we've made a lot of gains. Will we see, you know, a sort of counter movement, start to push back on that politically, socially, you know, depending on how the economy develops. That's my only fear in saying that we're, you know, we're safe and we're ready to go. I'm a very risk averse. (laughs) So I think about, you know, what are the risks that could come in and disrupt the progress we've made? And I think the risk is, is some of the potential backlash from, from certain players. I think one important piece is data. I, I always say this, but the transparency of data is so important because we need to talk about what is. The low carbon solution and i i have this conversation about circularity as well because you know somebody will say don't use us, don't use a plastic bottle you know use a paper bottle well it depends right which one is lower carbon sometimes you know a, a plastic container can be a more sustainable solution than a, than a paper container and sometimes the reverse is is true right and so it, it really depends on how a material is made and the applications and how it's being disposed and what is the regulation to keep track of it and so to having the data clear about what is truly the low carbon option, I think is really important because that gives people the confidence, and it's the same for energy, right? What is actually a low carbon energy source? You know, people criticize wind for having, um, you know, a, a high carbon footprint in the in the embodied carbon. Well, have you ever done the embodied carbon analysis of an oil and gas facility or of a generator? Also high embodied carbon, right? We, but we don't talk about it because it's higher in the end life. So it's important to look at these life cycle footprints to have the data available and really to make choices based on the data and not not the ideological stance of I want solar, or I want um, natural gas, or I don't want either. I also think it's really important to start talking about responsible energy solutions. So, you know, one of the things when I hear activists pushing back on oil and gas or on plastics, I really try to encourage the industry to look at what they're actually doing. Because some of the big players are being, you know, very responsible citizens and and doing the right thing. But, you know, particularly in Texas, we have a lot of companies who aren't doing the right thing. And that doesn't help the case, right? If you're trying to make the case that oil and gas, um, you know, is part of the solution to environmentally sustainable energy, then you have to walk the talk. Everybody does, because if you let a couple players you know, behave badly, that's going to spoil it for everyone. So we we have to actually lobby for good or advocate for standards and regulation that puts everybody at a higher level. Otherwise, we're always going to have the bad actors. And that's going to that's going to make it difficult to claim, you know, that oil and gas is more sustainable if, if we still have a lot of issues with spills or contamination or environmental justice and those issues have to be tackled but the same for renewables right so we have to have those same conversations with renewable energy companies I and mean, you you have a lot of criticism coming from communities about you know how offshore wind is being put out or you know which impacts are going to be felt who's going to get the jobs you know all of these issues are the same we have to talk about energy we have to talk about low carbon we have to talk about circularity we have to talk about human rights and we have to look at that same set of criteria across the board data driven and then make the right decision based on that same set of criteria
3: you know we're hearing more and more of our guests come on and talking about companies having to take responsibility for their actions right and so it was nice hearing you talk about responsible energy solutions you know that that's an important topic that everybody has needs to start talking more about and you know one of our big projects is a responsibly sourced gas that we're working on with one of our partners or the methane is a lot lower in that versus the standard natural gas. And so there's more and more things like that 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 we see happening that's going to help solve a lot of the issues. But what I can't figure out, and I don't think anybody can yet, and you can help me with this, how's everybody creating their own ESG scores? Because there's no standard set. Do you have an opinion about ESG scoring and where that might, lead where we might lead the how the where the country might go with regards to those thoughts.
0: Yeah, I mean my take on ESG scoring is that we have to be really careful about trying to make it too quantitative and too similar to financial reporting because ESG will always be at some level non-financial and it will always be at some level, the the things that you can't quantify and that you can't put on a balance sheet. Um, It'll be that unpriced externality. And, you know, it might be easier on, on, it might become easier on some of the environmental side, like carbon, we can put a price on carbon, we can make that clear and, um, you know, bring that into the economics of a project and and judge companies based on carbon and, and put that price aside social issues become much more difficult right to measure and there are a lot of organizations um, that will say they have a model for pricing this or putting value on it but but a lot of times it's subjective um so i I think first of all we have to be careful about over quantifying (laughs) esg because by its nature esg is is not economics and finance, it's people and environment and society. And those things are more complex. The other thing I'd say is that we also have to remember that some of these different scoring and frameworks, you know, need to look industry specific. So if you're looking at a company like ours, which is a trading company, we don't have assets, how do you measure us? You know, if your framework or your score is primarily based on how you're managing your assets, you're not going to be able to judge. A training company on esg because we don't have assets right or in our case right. um if you're you know if you're an agricultural company you have very different impacts than if you're an oil and gas producer right if you're selling solar panels you have different impacts than if you're installing offshore wind so we also just have to make sure that the scoring and ratings and methodologies that get applied are looking at the materiality and the issues specific to that situation. And that's going to make it difficult. People don't like that because that makes it difficult to say there's a one size fits all score or a one size fits all benchmark that you can compare companies on. There are some things in mean, management systems and decision-making policies, processes. Sure. You can, you can sort of compare companies across the board, but when it comes to results, you really have to look at um, the materiality of the company and then think about even with carbon footprint, you know, if you don't have assets, I don't have a scope one and two emissions. (laughs) So you could say I'm a great company because I have zero scope one and two emissions, but you know, is that really what it's about, right? And and if I outsource, if I'm a construction company, this was a big issue, you know, I faced in the past, if I'm a construction company and I subcontract all of my work, I now have no carbon footprint. Does that mean I'm a great company? Or did I just make it worse because I subcontracted to companies that aren't able to manage environmental issues as well as I could have, right? So there's a lot of different nuances that come into play. I think back when I was traveling a lot, you know, it was was still, I'm trying to think if, if any of the countries I was in, I ever had (laughs) renewable energy available, you know, it was was very difficult. And this goes back to the question of energy access, because I was working in a lot of developing countries um, where, you know, when I was in Liberia, we didn't have power, right? We didn't, I mean, I was working in, in places where there was a generator during the day and then there was no power at night. Right. And, and so that question of energy access is really, really critical, but I think. There's opportunity, what I what I remember about that is thinking about the opportunity for renewable energy because what I love about renewable energy is the potential for more decentralization. When you look at a lot of these developing countries that I was working in, we were using generators because that was the only thing really available on a local level. You don't have a, a grid, you don't have a, a power um, network. in in some cases. I mean, thankfully that's that's changing. A lot of countries are are getting a lot better about that. But back then,
2: you know, that
0: that was still a a big challenge. There wasn't any grid electricity in in some of the countries I was living in. And when I thought about you know solar panels and and the opportunity for small scale microgrids, you know, renewable energy in, in very localized places that doesn't require the amount of investment that you need to put together a whole grid or a whole oil and gas project, right? That 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 was what was exciting to me about renewable energy. But I think what the international experience taught me overall was that we have to be really careful in the U.S. about sort of the bias that we bring to the table. And this comes back to your discussion earlier about like oil and gas versus renewables. I mean, that that maybe in a, in a way is sort of a, a Western bias to a degree because we have these interests monetary interests in these different types of projects but I think for for the average person they they want you know clean reliable affordable energy and that really should be what we're focused on how do we improve people's lives how do we make the best decisions for the environment and for the for the future together without looking at it through this U.s, energy consumption and production lens like what can we learn and understand about access to energy and all the issues that come with that environmental justice racial issues human rights stakeholder engagement hiring practices you know waste management all of these issues are tied into energy development and if we can look at them through the lens of international standards rather than thinking about them in terms of a political or social perspective that we have from the way we've been brought up and and led to look at energy. I think that's That's very difficult, but that's what we need to do. Two absolutes, one is a price on carbon. I think everybody knows that and agrees that. I just can't figure out why we can't just get it done. (laughs) Um, That needs to happen. And the other is data transparency. I mean, that's the challenge, You know what we were talking about in terms of which framework and methodology and rating and things like that, but also how do we get that data usable and into the hands of consumers and policy makers and companies to be able to say, I am making a low carbon choice or I am making the more sustainable choice. How do we get that data there? How do we get it in the hands of the right people in the right way, the right format to be able to, to act on it? The culture of, you know, our company is very much about making change and, and still being agile, you know, not, not stuck in some of the the cultural bureaucracies of a very large, you know, established, long established corporations. I think we have an agility that's exciting. And so for us, it's been, how do we create this pathway for the trading industry? I mean, that's what I'm most excited about there. There's so much criticism in the past of trading companies as, you know, not transparent or, um, you know, what is their role or what are they doing? And, and I think the exciting part is to be able to, to set a new direction and say, you know, we can publish a sustainability report as a, as a trading company. That's, that's okay. We can do that. (laughs) Uh, We can talk about, you know, the, the ups and downs Uh, I'm excited about us measuring the carbon content of the products we trade. I don't think anybody's ever really done that. I mean, they'll look at maybe some of the fuel combustion, but not the actual cradle to gate carbon footprint of the products that are being traded. We're doing, you know, a scope three analysis, Um, And we're looking at really that collaboration. So, you know, on the plate for 2022 is let's see how many players we can get at the table to talk about data transparency, to talk about ESG due diligence and how we um, ensure that we're making the right decisions when we engage with business relationships and partners um, and, and starting to put together that value chain collaboration and play a role. I'm also really excited, you know, about putting together new products so we can trade traditional products. We can trade the bio-based products like ethanol that we have, but what are the products of tomorrow? You know, what is the energy transition going to bring? Have, have we even thought about this? You know, what, what does new energy and renewable energy require that hasn't been needed in the past? What are these new business opportunities for raw materials and chemicals and minerals and so on that, that may need to be, examine critically from a sustainability standpoint, but also that may need to, you know, match supply and demand and move around the world in new ways that they haven't had to before. So there's a lot of opportunity, but it's going to take a lot of collaboration. That's what's really exciting for me is like the potential for industry change. You know, if if an industry like ours that's in the middle that has a lot of excuses not (laughs) to engage in sustainability, you know, if we can do it, if we can show real impact, you know, both both from the business standpoint and environmental and social issues, I think that's an example, you know, that can start to spread. And, and we really want to focus on social and economic inclusion. We want to look at, you know, environmental protection, and we want to really enable that circular economy. Because I think with the climate, there's a lot of focus on, you know, renewable versus versus oil and gas. I was telling someone the other day that I, I think the future of oil and gas is circular economy because, <laughs> because if we're not going to burn the oil and gas, it's going to become products and then what's gonna to happen to those products and how do we make those products work for everyone and, and still be environmentally responsible. So I'm, I'm really excited about that prospect of bringing together climate and circular economy and starting to look at how these products can play a role in that in that value chain.
1: Thank you so much for that, Miss Elizabeth Carlson. Once again, you can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and eRenew.net. And if you listen to us over on Apple Podcasts, and we know that a lot of you do, leave us a five-star rating. Why? Because we promise you learn more about renewable energy and sustainability from the podcast than you knew about it before you stopped by. Once again, we've got a great slate of podcasts coming up. And again, if you've been following us on LinkedIn, you know that already. We're going to finish the year strong as we do each and every year. Jim Mitchell from Refinitive, Daniel Hughes from Constellation, and of course, we've got a great two-part series coming up with Deloitte. And then, of course, as always, with Mr. Mike Niemer and myself, the year in review that you definitely do not want to miss. So, once again, to Ann, Mike, Al, Roger, the entire E Renewable team, to all the Green Insider listeners, and of course, all the guests, without you, we couldn't make this possible. So, for the entire team at eRenewable, this has been the Green Insider Podcast Power powered by e-renewable we make going green easier